working through uh, a series called Effective, and uh, we are sure that you're going to be really busy this year. We're just not sure you're going to be effective. And so uh, you, for, to be effective, you need something that works. We're convinced the Bible works. And so uh, each, of, uh, the, each day during this series, we're going to introduce it by having Dan come out and tell you some facts as to why you can trust the Bible. Then I'm going to come out and give you a principle from the Bible that works. And then somebody's going to share a story about how that's worked in their lives. So uh, here's Dan. Hi, my name is Dan, and in the next few weeks as we go through this series, I'm going to be sharing some of the evidence that we have from history that the Bible is true and can be trusted. Can you trust the Bible? Today I would like to talk about the section that the Christians call the Old Testament. This is a collection of Jewish works, often considered in three parts. The Law, primarily written by Moses. The Prophets, written by several people who claim to speak for God and the writings or wisdom books, including Psalms, Proverbs, and a few others. The Jewish religion was, from the beginning, a written religion, in contrast, for example, to the Hinduism or the stories of the Norse, where those beliefs were passed down primarily orally before being written down later. Roughly 3,500 years ago, Moses wrote down the history of the Jewish people and added to that a codification of how they were to interact with God, what we call today the law. Teaching practices of the day did include an oral recitation of large sections of text, but the key was always the text itself, not the oral version of it. So when we think about the trustworthiness of this part of the Bible, we could look to see how well preserved were those texts. Are we sure that we have something today that is exactly, for all practical purposes, what was originally written? Well, there is evidence from the Bible itself that making careful copies and repeated public reading and memorization and recopying was both expected and practiced through the centuries, as well as self-references to other parts of the Bible being true. But let's set that aside because that's just someone talking about themselves. Let's think about it like a historian. We no longer have the original writings, or at least we haven't found them, but we have small fragments that date back as far as 600 BC, manuscripts which include major portions of books from about 150 years before Christ. And about half of the Old Testament in one single collection shows up in the Codex Sinaiticus, which was written about 350 AD. By the way, that same codex has a very nearly complete New Testament as well. Over the years, archaeologists find new sections. The most recent one that I'm aware of was the use of a CT scan just last year to look inside a charred manuscript that was recovered from a burned synagogue. That manuscript was dated back to 600 AD and based on the scan contains portions of the book of Leviticus. These portions are the same as we would read today. One of the professors involved, a Mark Brettler of Duke University, says this offers good and welcome confirmation that the text of the Hebrew Bible stabilized by at least the third or fourth century. Or in other words, we have pretty strong evidence that goes back over 1,500 years that the texts have been copied forward to today without material changes. A very similar experience happened with what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
These were found in 1947 and contain more than 200 manuscripts, a lot of them from the book of Isaiah. Some of these manuscripts date back to the first centuries, and it gave scholars an enormous leap backwards in time compared to the earliest manuscripts that we knew before 1947. And again, the text found in these scrolls confirmed the accuracy of the copies we have today. Doctors Josh McDowell and Clay Jones, in a paper dated August 2014, refer to over 40,000 ancient manuscripts of all or part of the Old Testament. This is an impressive number of copies, and it allows today's translators to be very certain that they are getting the words right. Because if there's a blurred letter or a torn page in one manuscript, the translator has several other texts to compare and ensure that the minor errors get cleaned up and the original text restored. In addition to the evidence of the manuscripts themselves, we also know something of the methods that were used to copy these books. We can't be completely sure of the way it was done 3,000 years ago, but we have very good evidence from a group of Jewish scribes that began work about 500 AD. They were known as the Masoretti scribes. It is likely that the techniques that they used were trained in them from previous periods. And here's some of what they would do when copying the text of the Old Testament. The Masoretis had a system of checks and balances to make sure that the text was accurate. And the system was very, very thorough. Numbers were placed at the end of each book, telling the copyist the exact number of words the book contained in the previous manuscript. And if the copy had a word more or a word less than the original, the copy was thrown away. At the end of each book, the Masoretis also listed the word or phrase that would have been numerically found in the exact middle of the book. So you start counting the words from the front and the back, and you keep counting in until you hit the middle. If the copy did not have the right word in the middle, it was thrown away. To double check for accuracy, after one scribe finished writing, another scribe would begin to count his words and look for that phrase that appeared in the middle of the book. If he found everything was as it should be, the copy would be kept and used for reading and studying. If the scribe found even one error, the copy would be discarded and the writing scribe would have to start all over again on another copy. Imagine doing that job, right? You could spend several months copying, the, say, the book of Ezekiel and then find out that you'd missed one word and you have to start all over again. The Masoretis also included a system of checks and balances within the text itself. So they would include, for example, a footnote as to how many times a certain word or group of words appeared. A footnote might reference the word garden, for example, and say, garden appears 11 times in the book of Nahum. So after the copying scribe finished the book of Nahum, they'd go and they'd look for the word garden. And if they found it 11 times, that was good. But if they found it 10 or 12, again, that copy would be thrown out and they would start all over. So we know that the process was extraordinarily careful. And we know from the volume of manuscripts that the version that we have today is very accurately copied from the originals. We can conclude from this information that we know what the Old Testament is supposed to say. Now, whether you like what it says or believe what it says, that's a deeper question. But there is little reason to challenge the Old Testament on the theory that the text itself is doubtful. worked so that uh, all of us would have an accurate copy of what God had to say uh, throughout to all mankind. It's, it's really amazing the, what's behind it. It's also incredible that we have a guy who not only 
is an amazing professor, but doesn't Dan look like a great professor? Like he looks like the kind of guy you could believe. Like that guy knows what he's talking about. Uh, okay, we are today uh, going to talk about quality. Uh, quality in your life, and we often talk about a life worth living or uh, a life that has quality to it. So we know you're going to be really busy this year, but is your life going to have quality? The Bible uh, talks about the opposite quite a bit in the book of Proverbs. So let's uh, take a look at a few of these verses. It says, uh, uh, go to the ant, you sluggard. Um, if you do not know what a sluggard is, then and your cameras uh, in your phones, really quick, just look up what a slug looks like. A sluggard is basically uh, someone who lives his life that way. Uh, uh, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, or no ruler. In other words, an ant does not have somebody from the outside imposing upon him quality. Somebody from the outside trying to get him to do what he needs to do. Uh, it comes from someplace else. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When, you, uh, when will you get up? From your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Slugger's view of life is, hey, just let me rest a little bit longer. Let me just a little bit longer. I'll get to that in a minute. He says, here's the result. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. He talks a little bit more about a sluggard in various verses in the book of Proverbs. Take a look at these. As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. You ever experienced smoke to your eyes? Okay. So are sluggards to those who send them. So those who give you tasks, no quality. No quality. Uh, the way of the sluggard is blocked by thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. A sluggard is constantly, constantly running into trouble, constantly running into trouble, and usually attributes it to bad luck. Oh, man, I can't believe this happens to me. I just have such bad luck. My life, it just seems like everything goes wrong. Uh, when in fact, it comes from the fact of being a sluggard. So uh, a sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven people who answer discreetly. In other words, a sluggard can be told time and time again, look, this is what's going on. You, you're not practicing quality. You don't have any quality in your life. They're like, hey, that, that's not the problem. It's, it, no, that's not it. It's that I have bad luck. It's that I, these things keep happening to me. It's not what I'm doing with my life. Kind of the opposite of what we're after, which is a life worth living, a life that really has quality. And so uh, how do we do that? How do we go from that life to one that has quality? Or how do we become somebody who produces quality with our life? And so we're going to take a look at that principle. One of the things I want you to notice uh, is uh, that the sluggard had to be, has to be forced from the outside to do his work. Somebody has to come along to him and say, get up, get up. You need to get going. You need to get moving. You need to get going. The ant on the opposite didn't have somebody on the outside. He didn't have this boss. He didn't have this person who was pushing him to, uh, to move forward. And so we're going to take it, pick it up in um, the, the book of Colossians, and it says this, slaves, so this is, this is important, um, this is addressed to slaves, 
slaves who had masters that would own them for certain periods of time until they could either pay that off or earn their freedom. Sometimes they would be lifelong slaves. So if in your situation, you're like, look, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand how bad it is for me. Um, You're not a slave. You're not in a position where someone else owns you. And for most of us, we can't imagine that you could have a quality life or a life worth living as a slave. Like, how could that be? How could a slave experience that kind of life? But evidently they could, they could because that's who he is addressing. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Everything. Most of us have a list of things that we go, look, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yes. But, but I can't obey in everything. Here's a few exceptions. And, and certainly you would understand why I wouldn't be able to... But his idea here is, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you, to curry their favor. To curry their favor is a man pleaser. Living your life to make someone else happy with you. So just, just just for a second, in your workplace, think this through. Do you go to work and experience, look, what I'm trying to do, if if I could just get this person to be happy with me. How about at home? Do you live your life to make someone else happy with you? Do you measure the quality of your life based on, okay, I've gotten my husband, my wife to be happy with me, my kids to be happy with me, my parents to be happy with me. If I can just get these people to be happy with me, then I'll have a quality life. He says, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eyes is on you to curry their favor. Don't do it for that reason. But with sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart means singleness of heart. In other words, my heart's clear. I don't have multiple different people that I'm trying to please. I just have one person that I'm trying to please. I, I am clear with where I'm going with my heart. With sincerity of heart, singleness of heart, and reverence for the Lord. This is kind of a key piece. Just going to give you a part of it at this point. Reverence means fear. It it doesn't mean um, a nice fear. It means afraid. It means that I'm in a position where I'm like, okay, that person is the person to be feared because they have the most power. They are the ultimate boss. They determine what's going to happen in the end. I don't know if you experienced this in school or not. I don't know if you had this kind of a principle, but uh, growing up, I had teachers who I feared this much. And so I would act up and carry on and get away with as much as I can until the principal walked in the room. When the principal walks in the room, I'm like, time to stop, right? It's t- time to quit fooling around. How come? That dude can hurt me, right? That guy can hurt me. I- I'm not, I'm done. I fear them. That's the idea behind this here. Uh, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Fear for God. 
Whatever you do, whatever you do. So in terms of our lives, in terms of quality, this is for all areas of our lives. Work at it with all of your heart. Give your entire heart to it. Give it wholeheartedly. Now here's a principle you already know, but I need you to remind you of. Anything that you do with your whole heart is enjoyable. We're created to do things wholeheartedly. And when we do them half-heartedly, that's mediocrity. That's the sluggard. Whenever you do anything in your life half-heartedly, you're bored. Whenever I come across a teenager and uh, they're like, man, I'm, ex- I'm so tired. Anytime I come off, to, off over anybody who's under 30 years old, they're like, I'm so tired. You're not tired, you're bored. You're bored. Because if you're actually tired, you're either going to be sleeping or you're awake, right? When you get a little bit older, you can actually be awake and be tired. But when you're young, you're actually half-hearted. What you're experiencing is you're half-hearted. That's what television does to you. That's what your phones do to you. It's a half-hearted experience. It's not a wholehearted experience. And so he says, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. There's this interaction that I can have with God where I can do it wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. And I can do this with anything in my life. Anything in my life. Whatever you do. There's no area of my life that I can't do this in where I can't experience real quality of life, where my life can't be really worth living, where I'm alive, where I really enjoy it, where I have a quality to my life. He says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So you may be in a position where you're not working for someone. You may be in a position where people work for you. Same principle. Same exact principle. Do it with your whole heart, knowing that you have a master. That you can interact with God. And you can give quality, but yours is not that you're interacting with someone else being your master, so you're doing it with all your heart. It's that you're the master. You're the one who's giving your whole heart to doing what's best for your employees. Same principle, it's just that you're in a different position. So where does that lead us to? It leads us to this. You can be effective. No matter where you are in life, because remember, it talked about slaves. You can be effective when you bring passion to every job, no matter how big or how small. We live in a world where... Uh, our stars say this all the time. Great athletes say this all the time. Find out what you're passionate for. And you just find out what you're passionate for. You pursue that. And don't you give it up, man. Don't you give it up. Now, have you ever met anybody who was like, yeah, man. That's not true. When Tate was little, he actually was. You ever met anybody who's in their teens and go, you know what I'm passionate about? I want to be a garbage man. 
That's what I want to do. I want to be a garbage man. And so I don't care what anybody does. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to college so I can be an incredible garbage man. Nope, not very many. There's a study that came out and it said this. 13% of the people in the world like to go to work. 13%. I don't know how they... (laughs) How do you do a survey of the whole world? I'm not sure. So there's another one that says 31% are engaged in their work, which means about 70% of people go to work to curry favor with their bosses. That's why they go to work. They go to work to curry favor with their bosses so they can get paid, right? Which means it's mediocre. It's half-hearted. It's not wholehearted. So this idea that you're going to find your passion and you're going to pursue your passion, if you're incredibly talented, like in the top 2% of the world, you might be able to do that. For the rest of us, we've got to figure out how to bring our passion to whatever we do. And you can do that. Because there are garbage men who absolutely love their job. And they're really good at it. And they bring their best to it, or they bring their passion to it every day. You know, I'm a hog farmer, or was a hog farmer. That's where I learned to do this. That's where I learned the most mediocre jobs you could bring your passion to, no matter what. Now, unfortunately, my mom had these chores that we had to do. And one of those chores was cleaning the bathroom. And I regret it, but I don't ever remember bringing passion to that job ever. All I remember is I hated the job, and the only reason I did the job was to pass inspection. So I did the least amount of work that I could do to get it done. And so therefore, no quality. And therefore, no joy. The second is to bring your best to every job, no matter how big or small. You see, if you bring your passion and you bring your best, you're going to have enthusiasm and you're going to have excellence. Not perfection, excellence. When my grandson, Kale, does his best, when he brings his best to what he's doing, it doesn't, the product doesn't look the same as when his brother brings the best but it's still excellence. Why? Because it's the best he's got. And quality comes when you bring your best to every job, no matter how big or no matter how small. And when you bring your best, some pretty amazing things happen. One, you enjoy your work. You create quality work and you create a quality life. When I was uh, in my 20s, Um, I got a job working for a construction company, and um, one of my jobs was to run a packer that had a vibrating wheel on it. And the packer is one of those big machines you see on the roadway when they're building roads. It has a really big, round drum on the front of the machine, and this one vibrated. My job for eight hours a day was to drive this thing forward for about 100 yards 
move over about that far and drive it backwards for 100 yards. Now, that's not a quality life. Wait a minute. He said slaves. So I really did take this on. I said, you know what? I'm going to do this unto God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give my absolute best to this job for eight hours. Now, don't get me wrong. Every third time across, I had to remind myself that I was going to do it for that reason. And then I had to remind myself, I was backing it up. It's amazing the joy that comes to life when you begin to give passion to it and you give your absolute best to that job. You really bring quality to that job. Your life has quality. Now, this isn't a promise, but this almost always happens. After I did that for about a week, they said, hey, man, you're doing a good job. We'd like to move you to the front end loader and moving dirt around, which is just fun. That's just fun. It's easy to bring passion to that job. And it's not, I don't, I don't present it as a promise. It's just what almost always happens. Whenever you bring your passion and you bring your best to a job, any little job, the people around you are going to give you a better job. It comes with it. So if you're uh, not a believer in the Bible and, and uh, you, you don't believe the Bible at all, I've already given you something that works. You get to take this this week and go to work with it. But if you're a believer, I got it because there's a why to this. There's something amazing to this. I want to share that with you. This is the because. Why, do, why would we do this? Why would we give our passion, give our best to any job that we have in our lives? Number one, because your Lord loves you with all his heart. You see, remember the same Lord that you're supposed to be afraid of? Something amazing happens when you realize that the person who has the most power is the, is the strongest, who controls things, right? When you realize that person will do whatever's best for you, no matter what it costs him, your fear turns into confidence and security and strength. Why? He's on your side. Why are we going to give our absolute best. Why are you going to bring passion and give our best to every single job that we do? Because there's an engagement that's happened in our hearts. Something amazing has happened. My boss is not the most powerful person in my life. God's the most powerful person in my life. And he loves me with all of his heart. And so I get to do everything that I do in response to that love he has for me. The second reason is because you love worshiping your Lord with all your heart. You enjoy it. It is fantastic. Now, some of you haven't experienced this yet. Some of you have. And worship doesn't just mean when you're singing, but we're going we're gonna to uh, go, go there because you've experienced this. When you first come to Skyline, uh, especially if you don't know Christ, you first come to Skyline, you, you, you just fold your hands and watch everybody, right? It's cool. And then over time, you begin to move a little bit. If you've ever given your whole heart to worship, guess what happens to your face? You start smiling, like really big. I can always tell if you worshiped a lot and given your whole heart to it, because when you leave church, you give me a bigger hug. Why is that? 
Because you love to give your whole heart to things. It's your flesh that lies to you and tells you, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Go half-hearted. Go half-hearted. Reserve. Don't give everything. Go half-hearted. Don't embarrass yourself. Your heart loves to give it all. And thirdly, uh, your Lord promises to pay you for all of eternity. What do you mean? God has literally promised. The Bible says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I know that when I'm running that machine or I'm cleaning the bathroom or I'm, whatever job that I'm doing, taking the garbage out here at the church, whatever job I'm doing, God has promised me he's going to pay me. There's something amazing about when God pays. He always, always, always overpays. Always. He overpays. And he pays for all of eternity. You don't just get paid once. You just keep getting paid and keep getting paid. Keep getting paid and keep getting paid. It's going to be worth it. So in your life, who do you serve? When you go to work, who do you serve? Do you live your life trying to get by on the least amount possible? At work? In your marriage? As you're parenting? When you, do your hard, when you do your yard work? When you do your housework? Are you trying to please a person? Even yourself. You're the worst boss in the world. Are you trying to serve, serve some voice of the past, your parents, your grandparents, your neighbor? If you do, chances of having a quality of life, not so good. How about you accept what God has for you? He loves you with his whole heart. You decide, you know what? I'm going to learn to do this. I'm going to start practicing this on a very practical level. I'm going to start picking these jobs I don't like. I'm going to give my whole heart. Maybe, maybe I'm going to do it for 10 minutes, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it my whole heart. And I'm going to do it in response to who God is and what God's doing in my life. We got Domingo today, and he's going to share a little bit about how it's impacted his life, how this principle specifically has impacted his life. And so, Domingo, would you come on out? Good morning, everyone. All right. So the Bible has affected my life and every part of my life. But um, one, of my, one part of my life that has impacted me has been at my job. I am a certified surgical tech. I've been there for six years. I also um, work for a local college that I teach students that they send to my job to train them. And also, um, and also uh, once, when, when they're on a break, I go inside the college and I teach them lab for the people that are failing or people that need extra help. So I do that. So um, anyway, I was in a situation at my job that my old boss had resigned and they had hired a new boss. The only thing is that the owners of my job made a big mistake by telling the new boss that she didn't need to worry about anything because we had Domingo. That, <laughs> that he, knew, he knew everything 
and that he was very good. After this, after this, the worst times at my job started, not only for me, but also for all of my coworkers, some of my coworkers. For me, though, she came for me hard because she thought I was the leader. So um, she, she came gunning for me. She started by telling me that I didn't know anything, that she had 20 years of experience at her job, that um, everything I did was wrong. Also that, uh, that uh, you know, also that, that, that I was wrong, man. That, that, that it, it bothered everything that I did for her. And it was very, very hurtful for me because I went in there and I worked hard, super hard. And, um, and also at the meeting, she used to like, like, sh like take over the meeting and shut everything down. And she was the only one that knew everything and, and nobody knew anything. So I started dealing with this situation and also embarrassing me in front of my, my students and, and my coworkers. I didn't understand why, because I went in there and I gave it 100%. I'm a team player. So uh, I started hating going to work. I started, I started dreading it. I was embarrassed. I didn't know how to talk to my family about it or anybody about it. But when I was going through this situation, it's crazy because when she, got, when she just got hired, I started coming to Skyline Church. And um, this, was, this was back then. And while I was going, I started going to Skyline Church, I committed myself to the Teardown team and also going to Life Group and, and um, starting to read the Bible. So I was, I was going, going through that situation, plus I was growing in my faith at, at that time. So I was doing both, right? So my coworkers knew that I started going to church and always mentioned that, that I was, they, they started seeing a difference in me that I have changed. Some respected my beliefs while others mocked me. After a year at Skyline, I got baptized, and not longer after that, I started doing growth calendars with Pastor Gris. So I was growing in my faith. I was learning and trying to apply God's words in my life. So I started learning that I was a sinner. I, I am not perfect. I was saved by the greatest gift of all, and that's by my Father's grace. That through believing in Jesus Christ, I was saved from what I truly deserve, and that was hell. I started to understand that the issues at work weren't about me, that this who, who she really was, right? She, she was going through she, she, who she really was. She, was, she wasn't going to change, and she wasn't going to change the way she was. She was dealing with her own problems. I started to understand that I needed to show her grace because that's what, what Jesus had put in, in, taught me and put into my heart. My Heavenly Father asked me to show her grace. So even though she was treating me bad, I started praying for her. When she complained, I would tell her she was right in what she was saying. I started doing whatever she wanted me to do. I didn't give her no ins, ends, and buts. I started thinking of her. I started thanking her for everything she did. I wasn't doing it to, to, to have a doggy bag and be like, oh, you're the best and this and that. I did it because this is what God put in my heart to do. Even though I didn't agree with what she, how she was behaving, I started complimenting her. I would tell her that she was super smart and that, well, and that she worked hard. I started focusing on her positive, not, her, not on her negatives. I continued to work like I previously always been working. I learned in the Bible that we all God's kids. I learned about David going out and getting the lost sheep, and I learned in the Bible about the son who took all the inheritance, all the inheritance from his dad and left and came back broke. I started learning about that. I don't work for humans. I work for my heavenly father. I started learning the real meaning of the Bible verses through prayers, joining and serving in ministry, going on a mission trip with Kalechi and, and through life groups and, to, and talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ.
um, listening to God's words and acting upon what he was telling me to do. Before this, I used to feel defeated. I had a lot of anxiety. I felt angry. The situation was very depressing through all this. I didn't let my coworkers know because they, how I felt because they all leaned on me all the time. When I started putting everything I read in the Bible and how I was feeling and praying about it, I started to have peace with myself. I didn't, I didn't pay attention or pay mind to my feelings. And if I would, I just would go and do a quick prayer down, downstairs or wherever I was at. It helped me a lot. See I, see, I knew that I was attacked. I was being attacked by the devil because I was the son of God, that I had surrendered my heart to Jesus Christ. Reading the Bible was my defense, along with prayers, reading, and reading Christian books, surrounding myself with my family and my brothers and sisters in Christ. Nowadays, nowadays, me and my boss have a great relationship. We laugh, we joke around, we respect each other. She introduced me to people as a right-hand man. She counted on me to get the work done with no worries. She jokes about it. If she leaves, she will take me with her. Um, she still is tough to handle at times, but I love my boss the way she is. I accepted her. It took a long time for me to get to this position. It took a lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of prayers. Um, I, understand that, that I, start, I understand that we all are, are God's kids, and we all got to deal with different situations. This also applies at, at schools with teachers for the young people, and also applies for us at work. You know, sometimes somebody bothers you at work or in school, you, you don't understand what that person is going through. And um, that's, what, that's what I learned in the Bible, right? So, you know, you, you guys want to know, uh, it's a special story that I want to tell you, that um, on Christmas Eve, I went, I went to her office. I had brought a gift for her. So I went to her office because I know she was going to give me a gift, so I wanted to beat her to it so she won't think that I, you know, <laughs> so... I went to the office, and, and I closed the door. I gave her a gift, and I told her how much she, she meant to me and how much I had grown with her. She, um, she, 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 she shut the door, and she started crying, and she said, I need to tell you something. And I said, what is, what's going on? She said, um, I'm going through a difficult time in my life um, with my health. And she started crying. I couldn't believe it. And I said, can I pray for you? She said, yes, and I ended up praying for her. That's how God is so great, man. You know what I'm saying? I, honestly, honestly, I don't know if, if, um, if she's going to change because she still struggle. <laughs> but I, I understand that I struggle, too. I go back to my old ways, too, sometimes. So we all, we all got our, our things. So I am very, very happy that... Uh, that I got that opportunity to pray with her. Yes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you that your word works, and that you pursue, pursued Domingo, and uh, right there at work, you've, you've been so alive by changing him, by showing him that... Uh, you're the one to be worshipped and you're the one to be revered and amazing thing happen when we do that. I pray for all of us to be able to take these simple words and this simple idea that um, everything we do in life 
can be worship. Everything we do in life can be fulfilling and rewarding by simply giving our whole heart to that task because you love us and we love you. In your name we pray, amen.